0: again everybody it is time for the mainland podcast episode 134 and uh, I don't know how to even open this particular show because I'm not used to opening it after a six-point weekend but that is exactly what we had Uh, let me bring in my co-host David Rowe six points this weekend between the Lions and the Pride
1: Uh, I didn't think we could count that high anymore yeah I mean that's just what, what happened?
0: I don't, I don't know. Somebody, uh, somebody got, somebody must have messed up. That's all I can say.
1: But didn't? Yeah, there was obviously something wrong. <laughs> there
0: was also obviously a mix up. Something got lost in the mail. I don't know. Something happened. But uh, good things happened. By the way, I didn't introduce myself. I'm Michael Citro, the uh, managing editor of TheMainland.com. Over at SB Nation, we cover Orlando City and the Orlando Pride. That's why we're very excited to have a victory for both teams this past weekend. Orlando City getting a Uh, Home victory against Toronto FC, something that has been quite elusive. That was only the second time Orlando City has beaten Toronto FC uh, since joining MLS in 2015. And the Pride getting uh, their first ever victory against the Utah Royals after drawing twice earlier this season. Um, And uh, falling behind early in that game, and it didn't really look like that team was going to be uh, able to come back and um, and post a road victory on short rest, but uh, they did exactly that. So um, a lot to talk about, and we'll just dive right into James O'Connor's first home game as Orlando City head coach. Dave, I did not know what to expect uh, going into this game. I know one thing that I did not expect was to see Earl Edwards Jr., uh, penciled in to the starting 11 at goalkeeper, where uh, Joe Bendick has been a fixture for the last couple of years?
1: I, You know, one would think that that would be the case, but I, when it happened, I wasn't completely surprised. Uh, you, you know, you and I have spoken uh, off air about, uh, you know, Joe is not having the – year that he's, um, had in the past. And, um, you know, when a new skipper comes to town and, and, uh, is, is going to give everybody a fair shake. Um, if you've got a guy that's been giving up goals, why not give the young gun a chance? So w- while I agree with you that, okay, yeah, Bendik's been a fixture. I mean, you know, uh, he was up there in, in total minutes of every, you know, player, uh, having played. Um, it's still, I, I did get some reactions from some other people going, you know, whoa. But every time that they I heard something like that, I was kind of like, eh, nah, you know, okay, I'm, let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. I, it wasn't as surprising to me as it would have been, uh, say, a month ago.
0: Yeah, for me, the big surprise is the fact that since Joe has been here, he has uh, played every minute he's been healthy uh, in terms of league games. And, you know, it didn't seem like – it, it has always seemed like the coaches, whoever the coach has been, has always considered the gap between the starter and the backup on this team to be significant enough to never give the backup minutes unless it's in an early round U.S. Open Cup game uh, or a friendly. It has never been like, uh, OK, you get a turn, you get a turn. You know, you, you sure. typically want to have a number one guy for sure. Uh, but. Joe had played, I guess, well enough earlier in his Orlando City tenure that, you know, he wasn't losing his spot this year. You and I, I don't know how many times I've said on this program this year, I think Joe could have done a little bit better on that goal. Um, but I, it seems like I've said it a lot this year. I think that there have been quite a few moments this year where Joe has allowed a a goal from a bad angle to go through his legs or like against LA last week, uh, you know, giving up a rebound that probably shouldn't, should have just been a straight catch. Um, it it just seemed like he's been a bit off his game this year. And so from that perspective, I'm not surprised that, uh, that, you know, James O'Connor went, uh, and gave uh, Earl Edwards Jr you know a game but from the other perspective of this guy's just always in the lineup you can count on it that that was a bit surprising so Earl Edwards Jr the landlord gets his uh, his MLS uh, sec- second ever MLS game and his uh, first game of the season in MLS and uh, he he rose to the challenge I, he wasn't tested a lot but when he was tested including a, a very crucial 1v1 with the uh, a guy named Sebastian Giovinco that a lot of people have heard of. Um, He came up huge and uh, he did a great job with his, I will say that his distribution was mixed. His throw distribution was fantastic. His, uh, his kicking distribution could use, you know, some, some work. And, and we, you know, that's something that we talked about even when he was with OCB is that sometimes his, his goal kicks, uh, his placement on, on uh, long passes has not been real good, not been real sharp. Uh, but his throws, boy, you know, do the old, uh, oh. you know, the, the, yeah. the chef kiss there. <laughs>
1: he's 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 got a uh, an all star center fielder's uh, arm on him for sure. Um, just accurate, getting right where it needs to be. And, and like you said, it, that his distribution from the arm helped create chances during the game.
0: Mm-hmm. Now Orlando City and Toronto came out and played a lot of the first half between the two penalty areas, it was really difficult for either team to really get a whole lot going. Um, But Orlando city did start to, to gain some momentum, look like the more dangerous side and, and lo and behold, not really sure how this happened. How did, who in the league screwed up, but Orlando city got to get on the scoreboard first for the first time since, I don't know, ever,
1: (laughs) Somebody uh, somebody when they when they plugged in the game, they put the positive on the negative, and the negative on the positive. It, it threw everything off.
0: OK, yeah, it was totally screwed up. But uh, one of the guys who was dangerous throughout the game is uh, a guy by the name of Dom Dwyer. And uh, he sent an absolute smashed shot at Alex Bono and uh, he could not handle the shot, could not handle it, could do nothing but fight it off. And one guy who would you maybe not suspect of reacting before any other player was the first to react. And that was Chris Schuler. <laughs> Chris Schuler gets to the ball first. He read it. He says, no way Bono's stopping that shot. I'm going to get there for the rebound. He sure did and headed home his first goal as an Orlando City uh, player.
1: And good for Chris Schuler. You know, it, I, I'm, we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt that he, he, he reacted before everybody else, which if you go back, he did the joke could just be that he's such a tall guy that it just looked like he reacted first, but just when he takes a step, it's just that much longer than anybody else. Um, but no, you're right. I mean, it was a, it was a, he, he read it fantastically. It was a, a guy who's been, you know, a veteran guy, you know, maybe he's hasn't had the most illustrious career, but, um, you know, he's been playing a long time and, and he, he knows the game and it, like you say, just steps up, puts the head on the ball perfectly. We go up, one zero, and I, I think we were all having the same reaction of, uh, you know, we're all doing the Ricky Bobby. I don't know what to do with my hands.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly, and and I had to look at the replay three times to make sure Schuler was on side. I, was just, I had to look at it. And go, was he really? Because he was so far behind the defense when he got to that ball. It was like nobody knew that ball was coming back out except for him. Except for Chris.
1: Sure, yeah. uh, and
0: sure <laughs> enough, I mean, he was, he, it was not even close. Uh, I was like, wow, he really did. He really, and he said after the game that he, he said, I didn't think there was any way he was stopping that shot. So I just went, I just crashed the net. So uh, well, we good get for back Chris to my,
1: sure. I mean, my, my joke about how far he can move with one step, but th- that kind of does contribute to how he was able to get up there.
0: Well, it's a good thing he can cover ground with one step because he's not the fastest guy. So uh, good for Chris! That's true. Congratulations on the first goal as a Lion, and uh, it was it was nice to take a one nothing lead and and uh, the crowd was was very much into it at that point. And, and and then from that point on, it really looked like Orlando City was always going to score a second goal at some point. Um, it didn't come before halftime, but it didn't uh, take long in the second half for that to happen as uh, you know, Mueller found Dwyer in some space and Dwyer just. Uh, got to the top of the box and just ripped an unstoppable shot to make it two nil. And then we got the backflip.
1: Well, Dwyer figured that he had ripped that first one and, and uh, it it worked out so well. Why not try it again? And this time maybe even hit it a little bit harder. So um, it was, yeah, we did get the backflip, which was fantastic. I think he was really feeling it that night. And, and, you know, more so, I think the entire team, I mean, if you, if you look at how it, how much on the attack they were and not just in the attacking half, but, all over the field, they were moving to the ball better than I've seen in months. Um, you know, they, they they there was a there was an energy that we haven't seen recently, and it it definitely showed.
0: There was quite a bit of rotation amongst the midfielders, uh, both the defensive mids and the attacking mids. I went back after the game and looked at the the heat maps of some of the players, and one of the things I, I noticed during the game was that. A guy who killed Orlando when when the team went to Toronto and they lost that heartbreaker late is Ryan Telfer, who was just absolutely destroying Orlando that night. And he wasn't a factor really at all in this game, Dave. And when I went back and looked at the heat maps, I could see why. If you take a look at the heat maps of Will Johnson, Tony Rocha, uh, Chris Mueller and R.J. Allen, they basically locked down that whole right channel. Uh, Will played a little bit more inside. He was helping out with Giovinko. Um, it looked like they were saying, you're not going to beat us with this guy. You're going to have to go to the other side. Oh, by the way, Yoshi Yotun's over there. He didn't play the, for the last time we played <laughs> you guys. And so right. they made they made Toronto switch it a lot to, to Toronto's right. And uh, that just played right into Yotun's, uh, you know, um, Ability to win the ball in the middle of the field and and also Elmanir and question uh, playing in that area as well. So it, it was a it was a good, solid, tactical game uh, plan by James O'Connor. It was it was um, executed well. I, w- I mean, I think Tony Rocha's inclusion like raised a lot of eyebrows, but I think he did a good job in what they asked him to do. Uh, could have scored a goal in this game, had a free header that he put over the net when he really should have done better on. But, um, you know, not known for his scoring prowess. So uh, we'll take what, what he gave uh, on Saturday in, in helping to shut down Toronto's attack. Um, when it was 2-0, uh, Orlando City did seem to lose a little bit of foot off the gas. And uh, either that or Toronto just woke up because they really started to get the ball to Giovinco. And Giovinco just by himself, tried to lift his team, tried to put the team on his back. Uh, he he made some incredible moves to get into good shooting locations. Uh, he couldn't find the net. The one time he did get slipped in, uh, just a fantastic ball by Michael Bradley, uh, slipped him in behind, and uh, you thought, oh, crap, here it is. Here's the goal. And Earl Edwards Jr. came up huge, huge. with uh, his his biggest save of the night and um, preserved that. And, and eventually, Toronto's attack seemed to peter out a little bit, but they, they really were, um, for a good 15, 20 minute segment of the second half, they were really on the front foot. They weren't getting a lot of good looks, but it, you know, with whenever Giovinco's on the ball, you just hold your breath.
1: Exactly. Right. And, uh... I was literally holding my breath some of the times whenever he would get the ball because it, it, it's Giovinco. He is a prolific scorer in MLS and um, it, you're, you're right. You're, you're sitting there thinking, especially on that one where uh, Bradley put him through. You're, okay, here we go. The landlord makes the save. Um, he had a couple other ones that, that obviously weren't on target. Um, and for a little bit, at least that first part of that uh, Toronto attack, it, it almost felt like, okay, yeah. Okay. This this is how the season's going to go. They're going to go ahead. They're going to get this goal. It's going to be 1-1, or a, a 2-1, and then there's going to be lots of time. And But it didn't come to be, and that, that once again, I, I wasn't sure how to react to that as I was watching it. I was just, you know, this, this hasn't been happening. What's going on? I, I'm not sure. Um, two other points. Um, let's give it up to Tony Rocha. The, the minutes that he's had when he's been on the field have been good quality minutes. Um, you know, we kind of joked about that one time where, you know, he was, uh, I think he might've been our man of the match. Um, but, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's played well, he's making the most of his opportunity. And then the second thing is how good is it to have you back? I mean, how much better do you feel with him on the field? Uh, I know it just, it warms my heart.
0: <laughs> yeah. He didn't play particularly well at LA, but that was his first game back from, uh, coming back from Russia and the world cup. And sometimes it takes some adjustment uh, to get back to your old team. And, of course, he's uh, with a new coach and everything. So he was his old self on Saturday against Toronto. It was good to see. He, he had a, a monster game and, and was a big part of the, the victory. Um, you know, Earl was about 25 seconds from getting his first Ugh. MLS shutout. Uh, but Amro Tarek uh, with a, a bad, um, bad decision, maybe a 94th-minute tiredness uh, fouls. Uh, Jay Chapman out just outside the area. Giovenko's over the ball, but it's it's on the right side. You're thinking, OK, he can't go for goal here. So maybe we're in good shape. Just need to clear it. Uh, but he puts it to the back post and uh, Mohamed El-Munir fell asleep and did not notice the danger from Nick Hagelin running in from from out of nowhere. I mean, like if this was a WWE wrestling, he would have been coming in from behind, <laughs> you know, backstage and he came running in. leaping in, out of in with a chair. Yeah. Yeah. He came in and uh, cut in front of El Munir and um, caught him, just caught him sleeping. And uh, you know, that happens after 94 minutes of running hard, you can sometimes switch off for a second, lose your concentration. You can't do that against a team like Toronto, even with their poor start this year and Hagland uh, ruins the, uh, shut out in just about the last kick of the game. So, uh, but we'll take it. It's a 2-1 victory. It feels weird to say victory, uh, but it snaps a nine-game losing streak. So glad that didn't reach double figures
1: yeah not only that but uh this is the first week in a while that uh i can say that i was really happy that we were both wrong on our predictions mm-hmm. um we, we we had the score line correct we both said two one but we had the wrong team winning so uh, uh it just it never feels this good to be wrong but it, it really it really feels good this week
0: Absolutely. Well, I already kind of uh, tipped my hand on man of the match. I thought Dom Dwyer was um, his he was his old self. I mean, uh, he had five shots. Four of them were on target, created two chances for others. Um, got in the heads of those Toronto defenders all night, was very dangerous. Um, and I thought he was my man of the match. I, he could have probably. um you know, had he held up a couple of runs, probably could have gotten Chris Mueller to score some some more goals because uh, Chris was uh, <laughs> deferring to him a little too much in the area. But uh, yeah, for for me, uh, Dom was the the top player of the game.
1: Yeah, as much as I liked seeing Yotun uh, back in form, and as as much as I love watching Chris Mueller do what he does, um, it, there was no doubt that it was Dom this week. Uh, uh, the, the goal, of the assist, and and um, just his his demeanor. I mean, he was um there was a fire in his play that uh, um, is, is good to see um, you can you could see it in his eyes and um, I thought that uh, like I say I mean he, he does what he, he he did what he does when he's playing what which would just create havoc for the other team and uh, and then the two shots that resulted in in goals were just ridiculously I mean they were freaking fireballs from you know distance so it, it's uh, you know No doubt. Man of the match.
0: All right. Well, it's uh, it's pretty awesome to to be talking about an Orlando City win again. It's been a while on this podcast uh, since we've done that for an MLS game. We've done it uh, a little more recently for uh, U.S. Open Cup. We'll talk a little bit more about the U.S. Open Cup later in this very program. One game that started an hour before Orlando City was the Orlando Pride, as I really hate when they do that, but they scheduled them uh, very close together. <laughs> and uh, the Pride were out in Utah, had not beaten Utah, the only team in the league uh, that, that uh, the Pride had never uh, tasted victory against. And um, they go out there and promptly fall behind early 1-0 on an Amy Rodriguez goal. On I, I got to say, I, I really don't know what uh, – back line is doing half the time for this pride team sometimes because they they have opponents outnumbered and lose the battle way too often um and and, you know monica is an international she plays in the biggest tournaments on the world's biggest stages against the world's best players and she should be more physical more aggressive and should be able to shut down players 1v1 half the time at least, let alone when she's ha- got help from Shalina Zadorski. And the two of them together should definitely be able to shut down one player, even a good player like Amy Rodriguez. And it's just not good enough to be near an offensive player. You have to be on them. You have to be in their pocket. You have to be yeah. jostling them. You have to be um, you know, creating doubt in their mind and, and making them uncomfortable. And that is not something that this pride team has been doing defensively. And it led to the first goal, a goal that again, I think maybe Ashlyn Harris could do a little bit better. Maybe didn't time her jump real well. Um, I think t- that Ashlyn is having a very similar season in some respects to Joe Bendik.
1: Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I was thinking. And it's, it's weird. Uh, you know, obviously Joe has been, um, a stalwart in goal, uh, prior to the season. And of course, Ashlyn's, uh, always been considered one of the better, uh, goalkeepers in, uh, in the women's game. But, um, you're right. This year it's, it's, they've both oddly been just a little bit off. Um, and that's, that's hurt both teams, um, so far. Uh, fortunately in this game, it, it wasn't enough to, uh, to, to keep the pride from you know getting all three points, but still, um, you're right. It's, it's not the first time that we've said, uh, Ashland could have played that ball better, just like with Joe.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, No Marta in this game. She was suspended for the uh, red card she picked up at Houston in the midweek. Uh, But going on the road at altitude and playing on a short rest, it didn't look good for the Pride to go behind by a goal early. And um, Pride did have chances. Uh, Alex Morgan had a chance early in the game that she... uh, She had a good opportunity in the box to score, but uh, Abby Smith got her leg on it. I think it hit her knee, uh, just an out, just, you know, the bend of her knee, about like four inches away, and that's a goal. Uh, Four inches, different placement by Alex. So uh, they had some chances, but it wasn't until late in the first half that uh, the Pride were able to level it. Uh, Corner kick, uh, Alana Kennedy gets uh, hogtied in the box, and uh, the referee spots it. joy of joys after uh, the Houston uh, dash were only whistled for two fouls the entire (laughs) game, the previous game. Yeah. uh, The, you know, the, the referee gets that one, right. And uh, Alex uh, lines up and I don't know what the referee was doing. I I mean, we've had our issues with the referees. I would say this about NWSL referees. They make MLS referees look great by comparison. Um, While she's, while she's getting this whole thing organized, She's allowing Abby Smith to stand basically right in Alex's face, and just to sit there and get in her head for a good couple of minutes. And I was thinking, there's no way Alex makes this shot because she's, you know, she's she's gonna have to hold her composure through, uh, you know, pretty. Abby Smith's big. She's kind of can be intimidating, I guess, and she's right in her grill, and she's just allowed to do it. And Alex is looking at the ref like, "Come on, <laughs> you gotta tell her to right. get back." And uh, so anyway, they they line up, and uh, Alex a great placement, good composure, uh, puts it in the top of the net, and uh, makes it one one, and uh, the Pride are are in the game. So it's one one, and um, you think thinking, well, anything can happen, and even on you know on the road against a good team like uh, Utah, a draw is probably not the worst thing you can have. Uh, but then in the second half, uh, just a, a great heads up play by Kristen Edmonds, a, a player who's been a little bit snake bitten this year. And um, has not been producing a lot and uh, really hasn't been getting a lot of opportunities, but she was uh, wise enough to know Abby Smith likes to roam. She was uh, sharp enough to spot that Smith was off her line and a, a great chip shot. And uh, that put her in the running for goal of the week because it ended up being the game winner as Chris Edmonds made it 2 one.
1: Yes, it was. And it was a, a fantastic chip shot. Um, as you said, it's in the run for uh, goal of the week. So if you haven't already, go out and uh, vote for uh, Kristen for that one. Um, it's, you know, back on the, the Morgan penalty kick. Um, you know, it's funny when when she hasn't had somebody up in her girl, she's hit the post and other things. So, you know, maybe. Maybe it helped. Maybe it gave her a little bit of a chip, chip on her shoulder, and she was able to 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 bury it. Who, who who cares why? But it was it was good that she did. And then, like I say, uh, you know, the other one is a, a goal of the week contender and and, and hopefully uh, winner because it would be good to have that and and good for And Like I said, uh, having you know not the the best season to to get that maybe that helps her out as well.
0: Yeah. So uh, that was all for the scoring. Uh, Utah was. You know, not terribly threatening. I don't think Harris had a lot to do in the game. Um, and uh, it was surprising because they had Kristen Press now and she has done well against the Pride in the past. And uh, on the other end, um, you know, uh, they had a defender pull one off the line. So it really could have been a three one game. So uh, but Tom Cermani's team bounces back with a win to one at Utah. Big, big victory for the Pride as they continue to try to solidify Uh, you know, playoff position with the games winding down. uh, I think there's uh, seven, six or seven left now. And um, it was, it was very important to get points of some kind uh, after losing a a very disappointing loss in the midweek to Houston. We, uh, we, we didn't really get into that game. Not a lot worth getting into in that game. It was a very poorly played game by Orlando. I thought, um, That was the game really where you noticed a lot of defensive struggles in terms of positioning, in terms of players getting in behind and um, just goals that should never have happened. And and, uh, you know, the the pride should have done better in that game against Houston than than they did. And uh, a team that's, you know, barely struggling to stay on the fringes of the playoff race. And uh, you should have had a chip on your shoulder going in because you just lost to them the previous week. You know, you got to do better than that. And and Orlando didn't do very well in that game. And I'm not blaming any of it on the officiating, but I will say had some opportunities for some good free kicks early in the game right around the top of the box. Nothing was called. Nothing was getting called in that game, Dave. Um, Houston didn't get called for a foul in that game until more than an hour of the game had passed. Right. As I said, only two. When's the last time that any soccer team (laughs) only got two fouls called in an entire soccer game? Orlando had 10, which is, I think, still a little on the low side, but it's uh, like a little bit more realistic than two.
1: Well, yeah. And and I'm going to argue a little bit about nothing was getting called. Nothing was getting called on them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, you know, Marta was sent off. So, I mean, that's that's a big one.
0: Well, a little bit of loss of composure for the Pride late in that game. Four yellows and a red uh, fly for the Pride. Um, oh, after nothing getting were...
1: called, that's going to be you are going to be frustrated as all get out. Not yeah. saying that it's it's good to do, but it's it's certainly understandable.
0: Not all of those were warranted. I thought Carson Pickett's was kind of a soft yellow, and uh, uh, there was a there was a yellow early in that game to Rachel Hill. Or I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting my I'm getting my games confused a little bit early in the game against Utah to Rachel Hill when she she get flattened, got a foul called on her, she didn't know why. Then two seconds later, she's uh, clips somebody's heel from behind and she gets a yellow card. So it was a tough it was a tough weekend officiating wise. We'll get into that. That was, that's uh, I, I saw it was in one of our uh, listener questions. We'll get into the pride uh, fouls over the last few games uh, here in a bit. It's, it's not been like this all season, but the last few games certainly have been a little bit lopsided. That's not why the team lost to Houston. The team just didn't play well against Houston. Correct. And, um, you know, uh, fully credit uh, the dash for getting all the points. It was, it was a, a one, one game through a lot of it, but um yeah, the Pride were in, not able to pull that out. That's why, again, the win at Utah was huge, huge win. Because it, you kind of thought going on that trip it might go the other way, winning yeah. at Houston and losing at Utah. This way, the net point gain is the same. So, right. Uh, so they made up for for the loss with a, a win that maybe wasn't totally expected. I, I kind of thought they would tie Utah because they did two previous times, but
1: still I'll, I'll take i uh, I'll take three points. Even if it, even if we won it 4 I'll still take three.
0: So the pride Dave, a, a huge game in the playoff race this Saturday afternoon at Orlando city stadium. It's the, uh, I think it's the game of the week on lifetime. And, uh, Thanks to Jill Ellis. There will be no Ashlyn Harris. There will be no <laughs> Alex Morgan because those two have been called into the U S national team camp ahead of the tournament of nations. Also called into the tournament of nations, uh, for Australia, Emily van Egmond and Alana Kennedy, but don't fret. They won't miss the game because Australia has a realistic coach and <laughs> respects the league. and yes. uh, knows that those two extra days are going to be the difference between winning and losing the tournament. Um, Yeah, it's it's frustrating. Uh, You know, the the spokesperson for U.S. uh, Soccer Federation said, well, everybody knew about the the you know, the that the the players weren't going to be available for this game and the the game earlier in the season uh, as well. But that doesn't excuse the fact that it was unnecessary. It doesn't excuse, Dave, Mm -hmm. the fact that Jill Ellis didn't have to call these players in as early as she did. In fact, the other ones were just. The other ones, I mean, these are friendlies, although it's a tournament format. They're still friendlies. The other one was just a pair of friendlies as well. And there was no reason to call them in a couple of days early when they had club games to play, especially since both of these games, Dave, were against Seattle. And it just so happens that Seattle and Orlando are battling for this, you know, the second and third spot in the NWSL.
1: Yeah, Jill Ellis has no chill, let's face it. Um, I, I And it was actually uh, in, in my Uh, article earlier or last week I I, I called it out that uh, it's it's unfortunate that that's how she goes about it. Um, you know, there are reasons, whatever they are. But um, if we're trying to grow the women's game, and hopefully we are, and hopefully Jill Ellis is, because I think that having some of the players in w- in the NWSL helps her in her job, um, one might think that she would give more consideration to something like, oh, I don't know, the playoff hunt. But um, evidently, not even on our radar.
0: Right. Now, let's say let's say I lived in like Miami and I have, you know, a 12 year old girl. She wanted to see Alex Morgan play. And I went and said, okay well, I'm not uh, doing anything, uh, you know, July 21st. Why don't we drive up to Orlando for an afternoon game and we can see Alex Morgan and then have dinner there, maybe stay the night and then come back on Sunday. And that's all gone. Because Alex Morgan is no longer eligible for that game. Now, I get it that she could get hurt and you might not have her in that game. But there's nothing you can do about injuries. There's something you can do about calling in a, a player uh, early when other the other nations in the Tournament of Nations are not doing that. I uh, haven't gotten Brazil's schedule yet. But based on what Australia has done and what Brazil has done in the past, I would assume that the Prides Brazilians will be available this weekend
1: one would think so and one would hope so <laughs> i guess we'll just have to wait and see
0: yeah it's uh, and, you know you, you say well you know seattle's got megan rapino you know that kind of affects both teams equally yeah but i mean the point is you you've got a, an important game and both teams are going to be missing key players and that's and and missing them unnecessarily that's the, really the the crux of my issue with this is that it doesn't have to happen it's two practices they're going to miss and the tournament in nations doesn't mean squat. I mean this team, you know, with the US Women's National team, you pretty much know what you've got. There's not going to be any surprises when qualifying comes against the CONCACAF teams. Uh, most likely the US is going to steamroll through most of the CONCACAF competition. It's not the same. You want them to be you want them to be battle tested, you want them to be ready, but those two training sessions are not going to change Alex Morgan because you know what Alex Morgan can do, you know what she she's she's not going to miss a beat because she missed two training sessions, um, you know several days ahead of the first game, and Ashlyn Harris is probably not going to play.
1: And the same with Megan Rapinoe. I mean, you know she's a you know a long time vet. She's those practices are not going to make any difference. So it's not that we're complaining about just pride players being called up. It's the it's the ridiculousness of all the players that are in the NWSL that are getting called up for this friendly uh, when it could be affecting NWSL matches, important ones like the right. Pride versus Reign. So and, it's, and it's, it's happening not just all us.
0: across the league. Correct. It's not, it's not just sour grapes from a Pride fan. It is, the fact of the matter is that every week the NWSL stays in business is a win for women's soccer. And it's a win for fans of women's soccer. The U.S. Soccer Federation has a vested interest in this league's success because it provides a platform for their players to stay fit and to compete and to face top-level competition all the time. You're, 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 you're biting the hand that feeds you when you do things that are detrimental to the league and the league needs its star power because it's already struggling for attendance. So if you take the star power away and you, you know, I mean, it may only cost you maybe maybe it only costs you a couple hundred, uh, you know, tickets. That's a lot considering the fact that you're only selling three thousand thirty five hundred tickets to an Orlando Pride game.
1: Yeah. If you're that talking would... about a tenth of the revenue, yeah, that's it's... that's a lot.
0: It's a big chunk and it's it, you know, it's something that you you have to be cognizant of. you have to, you have to grow the game in this country. Women's soccer is is really at a, a delicate place because it's it's popular it's just popular enough that people will start up leagues and 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 pay players to, to, to play. but it's not on solid footing by any stretch of the imagination. I mean we saw that already with uh, Kansas City. Uh, leaving and uh, also Boston Breakers. I mean, it's it's recent. It should be in everybody's mind for this to be happening the very next year when it doesn't have to happen is just ludicrous in my in my opinion. So I don't want to rail about it too much. I think I've made we've made our points clear on this. We don't like it. We think that uh, Jill should not be doing this. And um, you know, big props to Australia for not uh, taking the star their star players away from NWSL league games this week. Absolutely. All right, Dave. Well, in addition to Orlando City having a, a big U.S. Open Cup matchup against Philadelphia Union tonight, as this uh, podcast drops on the uh, Wednesday the 18th, uh, another game just a few days away in Columbus. We're going to bring in a special guest now to help us talk about this Columbus game and uh, maybe give us some uh, updates on Save the Crew and all that. We're going to talk to our guest right now after this all right joining us on the mainland podcast uh, we are happy to have back on the program from massive report the columbus crew blog over at sb nation uh patrick murphy pat how you doing
2: i am good how are you guys
0: terrific uh good we we finally got to remember what it felt like to win a game uh,
2: this yeah, I saw that. So
0: that was that was nice. I'm sure we won't make it a habit or anything, but uh, uh, it was good. It was good to to know the team is actually not going to lose every game until the end of time because it started to look that way for a bit. <laughs> um, but there's a a big key matchup in the in the uh, Major League Soccer Eastern Conference coming up this weekend between Orlando City and the Columbus Crew. If memory serves, Orlando City has never won in Crew Stadium, uh, and uh, I would uh, I would hazard a guess to say that, that could continue based on the the fixtures, the very congested fixture schedule that uh, Orlando City has. But looking at the the recent form guide, Patrick, the Crew only one win in their last eight. How is that even possible with this team?
2: Uh, well, they can't score goals right now. Uh, it's it's a problem we thought might be an issue coming into the season. Obviously, you guys know where Justin Merrim ended up, and Ola Kamara went out yeah, to L.A. Yeah, Justin's not
0: scoring goals either.
2: <laughs> right. Um, but Ola is out in L.A., at least to some degree. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was thought to be an issue in the preseason, um, or heading into the preseason, I guess I should say. They brought in Giassi Zardes, and, and things seemed to be clicking. Preseason, that carried over. Um into the start of the year, you know, five goals in the first two games, um, eight goals through the first four games. Things seem to be moving along smoothly. Uh, you know, it, it it say what you will about Greg Berhalter's system over the last four plus years and whatnot, but it's never been an offensive problem. This team has always found ways to score goals. You know, Kai Kamara obviously had a career season. Ola Kamara had two good years here. So um, to see this team kind of lose that scoring touch, you know, you mentioned that that stretch. Um, you take out a game against uh, Toronto where they're down three zero at home and have to fight back to tie three three. You know, they've only got. You know, I'm looking real quick here. One, two, three goals scored in in those seven other games. So. Um, now a decent chunk of those have been on the road where they've only scored 3 goals all year so that may you know not play as big of a part as it will Saturday when they're obviously back at home but you know this this team's searching right now and and Jassi Zardas has been a good replacement for Ola Kamara he's got 10 goals on the year but he doesn't have much help um, Federico Iguines was scoring early in the season he went through a bit of an injury and and is back now but the wingers aren't producing um, like they were in, in previous years. You know, Justin Merum had a career year last year, Ethan Finley the year before. Um, they thought Pedro Santos was going to be that guy who they brought in the second half of last year, and he's got one goal uh, all season. Um, looks a little bit better these last couple games, but it just, you know, the ball's not finding the back of the net. The chances have been there, but they haven't been. Um, as high quality and and even when they are they're they're just not scoring so that's been the big issue over these last eight games and uh, I think they're kind of scratching their heads to figure out what to do they brought in Patrick Mullins um, last week late last week he could be a guy who at least provides some some depth and pushes Giassi a little bit more but uh, yeah it's uh it's been interesting because this isn't a team that usually has trouble offensively and and that's definitely been an issue recently
1: now, Patrick, you mentioned uh, Justin Merriman it had a career year last year for you guys. Yeah. Um, I, I know you might not want to tell us this uh, prior to the weekend, um, but where is the on switch for Justin <laughs> Miram? and what, how, do, how, do, how do we activate him?
2: Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I think had uh, several other Columbus crew coaches been able to figure that out before Greg Berhalter got here, they probably would still have jobs with this team because, you know, you look back. At his statistics and before, you know, he's got 38 career goals, obviously one with Orlando and before Greg came in in 2014, he had five goals. So um, I think the answer might be Greg Berhalter. (laughs) Um, And, (laughs) you know, it's it's interesting. And and I've talked to some of the other writers around here, um, you know, after after the trade and and both the trade for Justin and the trade um, for Ola to L.A. About you know this would sh- really show how you know much of Greg Ber- Berhalter's system um, affects these offensive players and and Ola's having a fine season but he's not scoring at the rate he was before obviously Justin has has struggled quite a bit um, so I think that's part of it I also think Justin is a confidence player when when he feels good um, or when he's motivated you you tend to to see him play better now I haven't watched all of the Orlando games this year but. I felt like once he he kind of got in a rut, obviously he had the one goal, and, and I know his celebration was kind of towards the crowd, but once he kind of got in a rut and couldn't dig himself out of it it, it, it became even, he kind of compiled on himself, I guess I would say, watching from afar. And having watched Justin for the first seven, eight years, whatever it was of his career, you know, it doesn't entirely surprise me. Um, you know, For a guy that I covered for quite a long time, um, and got to know a little bit, and and for your guys' sake, um, I hope that he's able to find that form. Ideally, not Saturday, but um, you know, he, you know, he's he's a guy who who works hard his whole career. Um, finally, started to really find it. Obviously, got involved in the Iraqi national team, and uh, was was quite a contributor for them. And you know, it's just it's been really weird this year because, you know, I I think it's all there for him. I just I don't know what it is about this season, Orlando, you know, the, the coaches, I, I I don't know. I don't know what, you know, there's nothing I can put my finger on, I guess, that's it's changed that much that Justin should have just a goal and three assists this year.
0: Yeah. It's been pretty bizarre considering the fact that uh, even when the rest of the team was going well and winning games earlier in the year, he still wasn't really playing well. And it's, it's kind of funny because he, he really, his debut game was really a good game. He really played right. well and everybody got really excited about him. How is his slump or, or lack of production being viewed among crew fans? I mean, are, is it is it a big surprise or is it not? Nah, uh, that just goes to show you how great Greg Burhalter is.
2: I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think if you'd ask most crew fans, they probably would say that even if he'd stayed in Columbus, Justin wasn't going to repeat 13 goals and seven assists from last year. Also, I think it's worth noting that Almost all of that production, especially the goals, came in the first half of the season. Um, I think he had, you know, I, I want to say like ten goals before the All Star break, and uh, you know, so he he slumped the second half of last year in terms of goal scoring. Now he was doing other things; he was getting assists, he was still a contributor. But you know, I mean, they brought in Kakutamané at points. They played Kakutamané over Justin Marum last year, so you know, it wasn't as if. Justin, you know, rode that whole season um, on a hot streak. It was it, it's his production was largely in the first half of the year. And I also think fans have, have really come to fans in Columbus, at least, have really come to appreciate what Greg Burhalter is able to do with attacking players. And I think Josh Wolf, who's an assistant here, deserves a lot of that credit, too. Um, like I mentioned, Justin hadn't done a ton in MLS before Greg and, and Josh got here. And, um, you know, this system is geared towards attacking players and Justin fit in really well playing on the left hand side and being able to cut in. um, You know, I I don't know why then that doesn't translate to Orlando because I think um, at least under Jason Christ, there was a similar philosophy of, you know, we want to play attacking, you know, creative soccer and Justin seems to fit in with that. But I do think crew fans have, have been a little bit surprised that he hasn't produced more, um, you know, I I don't think, as I said, I don't think they thought it was going to be another career year. But one goal and three assists is is kind of mind blowing.
1: Now, uh, given that uh, Orlando is not scaring anybody right now, um, what uh, what aspects of uh, the Orlando attack um, give you pause? Like I said, I don't I don't think anybody's scaring anybody right now. But um, what uh, challenges do you see for Columbus in defending against uh, Orlando this weekend?
2: Well, first, I think the fact that they're not scaring anybody could be scary. Um, You know, I, I think there's a lot of talent on this team and I think that it just hasn't materialized for whatever reason this year. Um, And, you know, I think, and we talked about this locally when, uh, when Toronto came to town was, you don't want to be that team that they, that that the opponent all of a sudden turns things around against and against Toronto, they found themselves down three to zero uh, before fighting back. And, you know, I, I think a lot of that had to do with kind of walking into that game thinking you, you already had it won. You know, they'd already beaten Toronto at Toronto earlier in the year. And, uh, you know, so I, I wonder how that will be handled this week, handled differently this week so that a similar thing doesn't happen. But in terms of, um, you know, Toronto speci- or I'm sorry, Orlando specifically, I think, you know, Dom Dwyer is, is always scary. Uh, that's a guy who this league... Anyone who's followed this league for a while knows um, I think that any time you have a guy like that that can get into the box and uh, you know, create or, or be on the end of crosses, get on the end of balls, things like that, um, you've, you've got to be worried about that. He may even be underrated in this league, you know, given what he's produced throughout his career, um, you know, multiple 10 plus goal seasons. He's on the pace for another one this year. I think that's that's one of the guys that that Columbus really has to be on the watch for this weekend. Um, you know, the, the defense has been improved this year. Uh, in recent games, they've given up some goals, but it's better. Uh, it's not great, but it's better. And uh, you know, I think that'll be a, a target for Columbus this week is is to keep him off the score sheet. He's also had some success against the Crew in the past, um, specifically when he was at Kansas City. So uh, yeah, I think they'll be on the lookout for for him and what he can do
0: now Patrick uh we'll turn this around a little bit and talk about the the Orlando City defense part of that defense is a guy that played uh, all of two minutes for the crew Amro Tarek (laughs) who who actually um kind of looked like a depth signing but he at times has played like he was seizing a starting role it now he's been a little bit uneven uh since getting back from the Egyptian national team but uh you know what do you what do you think of of uh, you know Tarek uh, coming in and, and really playing much much more uh, you know I guess a lot more minutes and and much better than really anybody even even Orlando City probably expected at this point.
2: I am surprised, um, and and that's not to to take anything away from Tarek. I you know when he was here, the situation was just very weird. Um, looked like a player that could contribute on this back line and, and just obviously, like you mentioned, never did ended up leaving, you know, before much of the season was over. So, um, nice to see him back in MLS. I appreciated, you know, getting to know him a little bit. Um, one of the guys that, that, uh, does photos for us is, um, also Egyptian and, you know, got to know him even a little bit better off the field. And, you know, I've always heard good things, so I'm happy to see that he's doing well. Uh, but I was surprised that he's, you know, played as much as he has and and been a factor for Orlando City. Um, you know, he for whatever reason didn't seem to fit with with the Crew and MLS. And like I said before, I thought Orlando is, is a team that likes to play similarly to the Crew. So uh, it was a little bit surprising, but in a, in a pleasant way. And uh, you know, I I wish nothing but the best f- for him. And you know, hopefully that I believe he's on loan, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, so maybe this is a place that he can, he can land on a permanent basis.
1: Well, he's like Michael said, he's actually, uh, been a, one of the more pleasant surprises this season. Right. So, uh, you know, we're kind of hoping so too, um, it, it, looking at, um, uh, you know, the coaching change that we had here recently, obviously you've only got, you know, Two MLS games, of which uh, you know, to to judge uh, James O'Connor, obviously he's got his USL time, but um, you know, not a lot of not a lot of tape on the man, so to speak, uh, coming into this match. Um, how, how do you think the team's going to uh, you know game plan for that? Uh, w- what are you expecting? Uh, what kind of challenges
2: does that present? I think I think it will certainly present challenges just because they they don't, as you said, have a lot of game tape, but. Um O'Connor's a guy that Greg Burhalter is, is decently familiar with, apparently. I didn't know this, but when, when the whole coaching change happened and, and they appointed him, um, Greg spoke you know pretty fondly of, of him. It's a guy, apparently, that he talks to a decent amount. Um, he knew while he was at Louisville. So familiarity, I guess, is there just in some aspect. But uh, once you move teams, you're, you're using different players and things like that. Um, I think that does make it challenging you know it's it's similar to when a new player comes in and, and hasn't played much for a team and, and you have to game plan for for that guy a little bit uh, you don't know exactly how they're going to go within that team you can look at old footage you can look at you know how they've been used elsewhere and in this case how you know they, the coaches has done tactically but you never know exactly what's what's going to be done until there's you know several games under a belt. You know sometimes it takes even a full season to kind of get a feel for what a coach wants to do. Um, so yeah, I think that's definitely a challenge for the crew this week. Um, you know Columbus, ever since Greg's taken over, has been very much of the approach that we're going to play our game. We want to kind of dictate that to the opponent, and and then the opponent has to adjust to us. Now they've changed that a little bit um, in the last year or so. I think MLS has forced them to do that at points. But, uh, you know, I think that'll kind of be the approach this week is, you know, let's go out. Let's do what we do um, and, and, you know, try and find ways to hoard, hurt Orlando that way.
0: Patrick, before we let you go, a uh, couple things I wanted to talk about. The first of those is, uh, and neither one of them may be uh, things that, that Columbus fans would like to talk about. But um, <laughs> okay. uh, the first is Greg Burhalter is uh, a name that has been very widely uh, reported uh, as a as a U.S. men's national team uh, candidate and just wanted to get, you know, with your your resources, you know, what you're hearing on that front. Do you think Greg is the favorite? You know, how has the team sort of responded to those rumors and, and all of that kind of thing?
2: Um, the team's responded well. Uh, I think, you know, Greg has handled it with, you know, he'll answer the questions and, you know, I think that when He first started getting asked about it. He kind of distanced himself from that a little bit without saying, you know, no, I'm not going to take that job recently. It's been a little bit more, um, you know, I, you know, representing my country as a player was such a great honor. And, you know, if the time comes that I would be able to do it as a manager and if the situation were right, you know, then that would be an honor too. So there has been kind of a a change in, in the way he answers those questions, which you know, I don't know if you should read into that too much, but uh, Greg's usually pretty calculated with with how he answers things. So I don't know if there's anything going on behind the scenes in terms of talk with, um, you know, the national team and, and whatnot. Obviously, there was speculation when Ernie Stewart took over that general manager position that, you know, he has a relationship with Greg. But as Greg pointed out, you know, as a guy that, that grew up in, in the U.S. system, um, played for the national team. His brother works for U.S. soccer. You know, there's not many guys that would have been hired for that position that he wouldn't have had a relationship with. So he kind of brushed that off as as not, you know, an indicator of anything. Um, I think that Greg would be um, a good, good fit for the job. I would be interesting to see because he's had such a structured way of playing here that, that takes time to develop how that would work. With you know, when you have a camp of, of a week or so, um, you're trying to bring in players that fit that style. You know, we've we've seen it work in in other countries. Um, you know, I think Spain is is probably the most recent example, but Germany as well, where guys have come up from the bottom playing an exact type of soccer, and and you know, sometimes some players who are good get left out. Mm-hmm. So maybe that would be the approach. Maybe Greg would have to adjust. Um, you know to to what players he has but it would be interesting um i do think that US soccer could use some of that structure but uh yeah i don't know i think uh crew fans would love to see him stick around but i have a feeling that the next question you're going to ask me <laughs> has to do with with sticking around in general so we'll get to that
0: do you think greg's the favorite uh,
2: i don't know um i guess i you know one of the guys that i Thought was was right up there with Greg was Jesse Marsh and obviously he just uh, moved on from from the Red Bulls. I think Greg Vanny has has to be in consideration as well. Uh, if we're talking you know local you know or MLS coaches, um, I think Greg is a favorite. I don't know about about the favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, that's just me speculating. So, you know, i it's not a, I don't have any inside information with us soccer, I guess is what I'm saying.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, he, he turned Jossie Zardes into a useful player, so he's got to have something yeah. going for him.
2: Uh,
0: <laughs> you correctly surmised, uh, about my final question. Just wanted to get an update on, uh, what's sure. the latest on save the crew?
2: Um, well, we're kind of in a, a holding pattern right now and it'll be that way probably into August. The, the most recent kind of notable events um, were down in Austin and uh, the the city council down there passed uh, two bills, I guess you would call them, that, that didn't seem to really fit together uh, initially. One was that they will negotiate with Anthony Precourt on the land that, that, you know, after several sites have been turned down, that they have identified for um, the potential stadium there. It's uh, It's a site that's a little bit north of downtown Austin um, and you know they they seem to deem it um, suitable it was probably their third or fourth choice initially but other sites didn't work out so um, so they're going to negotiate with him but another bill that passed was that there are other interested parties in that land and those people will be able to present their proposals at the next City Council meeting which is in August and uh, then they'll kind of go from there. So it kind of came out as a, a wash. Um, Anthony will get to negotiate, but um, he's likely going to have to step up his offers for our offer for the land. Originally, um, they wanted to rent it for, I believe, like a dollar a year, pay no taxes on it and, and and things like that. Now that there are going to be um, competing bids coming in in August, I can't see that that would fly. One of the bids um, they're talking about, I believe it's like an arts music kind of center and they're talking about paying upwards of two million dollars for for the land and things like that so uh, so we're kind of waiting to see what happens down there from the Columbus level from everything you know I've heard and understand there are um, potential owners here that are willing to make a move if and when the league is is ready to to do so um, in terms of you know buying the team from Anthony or you know, however that situation may work, uh, I don't know what it would take for that to happen. I think a lot of crew fans feel like there needs to be enough egg on Anthony's face with the whole Austin situation to force the league to make a move. You know, I I don't know. There's also been some some speculation that if the Austin do, Austin sites don't work out, he could take the team elsewhere, which wasn't thought to be a possibility at first, because I don't know if we discussed this the last time I was on, but there was supposed to be a clause in the contract that said the only place the team can move is to Austin. Well, apparently there might be ways around that too. So it's going to be interesting, I think. Um, and I mean that in a potentially negative way. Um, I think things look better than they did, you know, six months ago, four months ago, even, um, you know, the, the fact that it hasn't been a smooth transition, I think, is a, is a good sign um, and also shows how poorly um, pre-court sports ventures did their homework on, on what they were going to have available to them in Austin. You know, I think they thought that bringing a professional sports team there would be enough to, to get things moving quickly, and that has not been the case at all. Meanwhile, in Columbus, there's been a lot of hell raised by fans and, and you know, people have get, local businesses and whatnot have gotten on board to show that there is support. Um, what will be interesting with, with those local businesses is, you know, if and when the team does end up staying here, do they then put their money where their mouth is and, you know, become local investors in a team and whatnot. So mm-hmm. we'll see. I do think local ownership, um, especially in a smaller market team, is important. And, you know, so if they can make that work, I think Columbus is a city where where soccer can do well. Um, you know, obviously you're competing against Ohio State football um, in the in the fall. You know, the Blue Jackets start up. You know, whenever hockey season starts up. So you know, that's not really a, a major competitor. You've got minor league baseball in the summer, but. Uh, you know that that wouldn't be too big of an issue either so I believe if it's you know sold right and and handled correctly and we've seen it in the past that, that this could be a, a good place for soccer and I think you know that's kind of the point that, that people have tried to make to MLS okay. so sorry for the long-winded answer there's there's kind of a lot to to unpack there
0: no definitely uh, appreciate your insight there because it's it's been a little bit quiet uh, save the crews kind of gone yeah. a little bit back burner I, I mean outside Columbus obviously it's uh, very sure. much on the front burner there uh i can only tell you from somebody who lived in texas for two years that speed of bureaucracy is not uh you know rapid fire there in that particular right. uh, location but i will say that if um, PreCourt was trying to move the team to miami uh it probably would have already fallen apart because <laughs> apparently you, you can't get a stadium there <laughs> uh yeah. as, as mr beckham is finding out although Frankly, if you just grease the right palms, you can get anything in Miami. So, uh, uh, Patrick Murphy from Massive Report. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, uh, wish we had talked a little bit more about the matchup, but, man, just so many topics to cover and, and so little time. But uh, appreciate you returning to the podcast.
2: Absolutely. I'll be on anytime you guys need me.
0: All right, big thanks to Patrick Murphy from Massive Report for uh, being with us on the show. I uh, grew up uh, just outside Columbus, and I lived in Columbus for uh, a decade, so I am am very much hoping that they can get the crew situation uh, under control and keep that team there because, I mean, I've seen firsthand what it does to people when their favorite sports team is taken away from them and what it does to a city. It's never good for anybody. You never want to see it.
1: Yeah, we've talked about that
0: before. <laughs> Thanks for jumping in there, Dave. I wasn't sure you were going to for a minute. Um, all right. Well, why don't we get to our uh, Ask the Mainland podcast mailbag? You can do this two ways. You have uh, any questions for us, you can direct them to us uh, via email. And uh, you can send those to themainland at gmail.com. And uh, just uh, hit us up with Ask the Mainland podcast in the uh, in the subject line or or the hashtag, which you can also use on Twitter to get us. We're at The Mainland. That's our Twitter. And hit us up with the hashtag, uh, hashtag AskTMLPC. So uh, let's start with our mailbag questions from the email. Lee Gavlik, friend of the podcast, uh, he says, uh, Dave, are you familiar with Mike Petkey's latest rant?
1: I... Heard a little bit about uh, yes, it, yeah.
0: Yes, yes. Mike Petkey of uh, Real Salt Lake was an unhappy, unhappy man about the officiating and the uh, loss to Minnesota United. It uh, says he doesn't care. Drain his bank account. He doesn't care. He needs to say something about the officials. Anyway, Lee wants to know, after Mike Petkey's latest epic rant from this past weekend, do you agree that pro officials should be made available to the media after each game, similar to coaches and players? He says it could definitely help give some much-needed transparency to the fans, and it might also hold referees accountable uh, for their officiating decisions. But I could also see how it might further enrage certain fan bases, players, and coaches, creating a very negative and perhaps even dangerous environment at the stadium when certain members of the professional referees organization come to town. Dave, what do you think? Uh, Should pro referees, or should referees in any sport, uh, especially soccer, be made available for uh, questions from the media after the game?
1: I absolutely love the idea. I don't think it'll happen, but I absolutely love the idea. Uh, I mean, can you just imagine the the press conference and the uh, the reporters afterwards asking about individual calls and this and that? It, it sounds it's this is one of those things that sounds great when you hear it and you're like, "Yes, do that. Hold those suckers accountable." But it, it's not going to happen, and I, I'm not. As, as i talk it through i'm not even sure that it should um officiating is incredibly hard i'm not sure that um you know we we say all the time pro gonna pro and and i'm not saying that these guys are the best in the world obviously um but it is a hard thing to do in live action time uh while watching professional players you know move at that speed so um, it's you know, if I think it wouldn't be a question if um, there was a, a semblance of more accountability um, from the league and from pro when they do mess up, I think the, the lack of that is what's was, is prompting uh, this feeling of, you know, let us, you know, let us grill them. Um, so I think if, if they were to, to do a little bit more internally, but, but you know, public, here's here's what we did and here's why, then it wouldn't be as big of a deal. Um, I don't think either of those are going to happen, though.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that they should be made to stand at a podium and answer questions from the media. I don't think that that's a – I don't think that's an environment that helps the sport, And uh, but I do think there should be some accountability. The main thing that, that MLS should do is make – these referees just comply with the rules that are in place, which is that if there are questions about a call, what happens is there's a pool reporter. In our case, it's, uh, it's Mike Ramajo. I am the backup pool reporter at Orlando City Stadium for MLS games, where, you know, people will hand Mike a question. Mike has to turn it in at the end, you know, before the end of the game so that it's there waiting for them. And then they can make a written reply. The problem is that these referees are not—they're basically not answering the question. They're just saying, uh, you know, hey, why did you call a handball in the box? I saw a handball in the box. I mean, it's—it's it's really that ridiculous that the, the answers that you get from them. Right. And, and you can't—you ans- can't—they don't have to. They're not required to a- answer any questions about uh, video review. They're not required to answer any of them. So if you ask, you know, what did what did the video assistant referee say to you about that goal that you overturned? You know, they won't they they don't even have to answer you. They just say that's a VAR question. I don't have to answer it. And it's 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 something that's being worked on. I can assure you uh, by, uh, you know, the the organization, the the soccer writers from uh, North American soccer writers. And it's it's being addressed and. I know everybody involved seems to want this to be fixed. It seems to want this. I mean, the supposedly the referees, the the supposedly pro wants this fixed. Uh, MLS wants this fixed. Certainly the writers do. It's, it's not, I think out of the realm of possibility to, or, or, you know, I don't think it's asking too much, I guess I should say to get an honest answer of, you know, why did you, for example, overturn, um, Dom's wire's goal, which appeared to be a good goal, uh, didn't appear to be a clear and an obvious error with mm-hmm. with just the hearsay of the video assistant referee, and then it didn't seem like you even bothered to look at the Diamande goal that supposedly crossed the line, but we couldn't really tell. <laughs> you know, uh, right? So, I mean, I think it's just uh, that's what's so frustrating as a fan is you don't get to even hear. Any kind of reasoning. And that's, you know, that's why, uh, you know, when we had Daniel Bird on that, I asked him that question. It's like, what, what were you told on the sideline? Because, we, you know, we don't have anything to go on. They're not accountable. They don't have to tell you. And that's the other thing. The, account, the other part of accountability, Dave, to me, is that if you have a colossal blunder that costs a team points to the, to the you know, we've seen this several times with Orlando City of, of oh, yeah. Pro coming out and saying that we got that call wrong. There's no accountability for those officials. Now, every once in a while they say, you know, you don't. they, they may not be in the next week in, in the lineup anywhere, and we're told that that's not being, you know, punitive. But I, I think it's not out of the I, – I don't think it's too much to ask that. If you screw a team out of a goal or give a team erroneously a goal, you should be gone for a few weeks, not just one week. I think you need to go back and you need to observe – and you need to get better at your job. And, yeah. uh, you know, particularly when it's an obvious error that, that the, the, the organization has to come out and, and apologize for after the fact. And, um, you know, it's everything you do in life. There's a job review. You know, any job you have, there's a job review. And this is part of the situation. If I screwed up colossally at work and cost my organization a million dollars, do you think I'd be allowed back in the week after next Mm, probably not. <laughs> no, it's not happening. So, uh, yeah. So I, I agree. There should be some accountability. And I do appreciate this uh, question from Lee. Thank you so much for asking that. And uh, hopefully I didn't ramble too much about it. <clears throat> uh, we have a question from Greg in the email. Uh, and this is the one I was talking about earlier over the last three games, the pride have had the whistle blown on them 35 times, three games, 35 times, as opposed to their opponents having only been called for 13 fouls. Add to that, they've accumulated seven yellow cards and one red to their opponents. One, do you think the pride play that much more physically or are these stats indicative of what appears to be poor officiating in the league? Well, I'll start with this one i think that the pride are not physical enough i think that the part of it is not necessarily physicality part of it is late or clumsiness or uh some cases tactical fouls because players have been beaten um but i do agree with you that that 35 to 13 is a bit ridiculously weighted against orlando and i don't i'm not i'm not saying there's a, a conspiracy I'm not saying that teams, you know, that the <laughs> league or that the officials want Orlando to lose again. I will always err on the side of uh, incompetence uh, can explain a lot of, you know, more than a conspiracy can uh, when Correct. it comes to officiating. Um, but the, the Houston game was a, an ab- It was an abomination. I mean, for a team to go an hour without a foul is unthinkable, as physical as that game was. And yes, the referee let some things go both ways. But, boy, they were letting a lot more things go one way than the other. And and that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, where if you have a game like that, you need to be reviewed, critiqued. And if you have a game like that, you need to be sitting for a couple of weeks and let it affect your paycheck. Uh, That's the only way to make these refs get better at their job. There's no incentive. They're not going to miss any games. They're not going to miss any. You're not missing a paycheck. There's no incentive to get better. And I think that they need to get better. and, And they need to talk to some other organizations around the world i will say this you will not find a fan or or let me say you will rarely if ever find a fan of any sport anywhere in the world who says oh man you know what our league has fantastic officiating (laughs) no one says this so it's it's not just here although I watch a lot of European soccer. I watch some South American soccer. I don't see the as many egregious calls around the league, you know around the world as I see here. In fact, we just had a few weeks ago. There were three, Dave, three red turn red cards overturned in a week. Three in one week, and we have video review. How is this possible?
1: Yeah, that shouldn't be a thing that's happening in. Anywhere, um, but of course, it's happening here. Uh, so you know, because we can't have nice things, uh, especially when it comes to uh, our officiating. Um, you're right. it's completely out of whack, especially in that Houston game that was, um, you know, you can say that that was an outlier, but it regardless, it, it's it was utterly, utterly i mean lopsided in in the calls and and there's nothing <sighs> like you said, no accountability. So how, how do you fix it? If you don't have any accountability, how do you fix it? Um, because once again, like you said, what's the incentive for them to do better? Um, I I agree with you and we've said it many, many times. Don't, you know, mistake incompetence for conspiracy. And, and I know that you and I will both stand by that. Um, that doesn't mean that it's a good thing because that just means that we have incompetent, uh at least a part of the time officiating mm-hmm. so it's it's not it's not it's not we don't say that to make you feel better <laughs>
0: right and i don't like you know? to go i don't even like to bring up officiating on this on this podcast i don't like to talk about it i don't like to write about it it shouldn't it should be shouldn't impact the game right it should it be should wallpaper be silent officials right. should be wallpaper you should even know they're there um but unfortunately sometimes you do and, and it happens uh, it seems to happen a lot against orlando city it hasn't really been a lot against the pride although uh the last few games or last couple games i would say it certainly has been a little bit weighted the other way uh but that i i don't think it's been that way the entire season now i have i i at least not that i've observed i could i could be totally wrong and go back and look at the numbers and say whoa (laughs) but it certainly stood out at houston um because I was keeping an eye on it and I I was keeping an eye on all the physical contact and all of the stuff that was being let go and all of the things that I thought shouldn't have been let go. And then it got to be halftime and Houston had no fouls. And I was like, how is it possible to go through half a game without a foul? And um, especially in a game, this physical, and that's the kind of game that referees tend to lose control of because they let everything go. And then players get mad. They get frustrated. They get tired and, they start taking matters into their own hands. Well, nothing's getting called. So I'm just going to chop this person down. And, you know, that's how, that's how these things escalate and referees should control the game. They shouldn't be letting them escalate. And they shouldn't, you know, I think if you have to make a couple harsh calls early in a game to, to, to set the tone, then do it. But, uh, so Greg, to answer your question, what, if anything, you think can and should be done to improve the officiating. I think, um, Hit them where it hurts. Make them get better by affecting their bottom line. That's Absolutely. that's what I think. And I think also there needs to be a better, probably a lot better grassroots um, training program for officials in this country. I don't think it's uh, probably where it needs to be. Um, so, um, you know, that's that's what I've got for you. I think there are good officials probably in the USL that are ready to play, you know, ready to do MLS games. Um, maybe they should be given a chance earlier. Um, I think this, quite frankly, there's some MLS referees that I think are not quick enough to keep up with the game anymore. There's there's a few that are a little bit long in the tooth and maybe not in the greatest shape. So I think all of those things go hand in hand. But, you know, I, I think that the, the hire of Howard Webb last year should uh, be improving things. It, these things take time. Um but uh, how much time before you say this is not working and we need something else? I don't know. Uh, I, I'm willing to give him another year or so to see if things get better uh, since the Howard Web signing. So anyway, Greg, thanks for the uh, email. I would say your last name, but I, I'm not sure I would pronounce it without hurting myself uh, or, or, or offending you in some way. So
1: <laughs> just know that we appreciate you nonetheless.
0: Greg M. Thanks for the question. Uh, I think we have one question more uh, from Twitter. This is from Ryan Smith. Uh, Ryan says Dom has the backflip. Chris Mueller has the Johnny Manziel pay me. Well, he also did the Cristiano Ronaldo thing. Uh, although it's been a while since we haven't we haven't seen Chris in a while get to celebrate. So, what is your signature celebration? Also, favorite team celebration routine you've seen?
1: Okay, so uh, my signature. I I like to say that it's something flashy more than likely if, if I was able to get down to score a goal, it would be just falling to my knees with a great sense of relief and probably out of breath. Um, but if I was able to do anything, I'm going to go, uh, all out, um, dance moves i'm talking the uh you know mowing the lawn um the sprinkler the you know getting the stuff off the aisle you know putting it into the shopping cart every stupid dance move you can think i'm doing them all (laughs) all the way over to the sideline um Favorite team celebration? Uh, I, I gotta go. I gotta go way back to the icky shuffle. Um, a bunch of our listeners probably have no idea what I'm talking about, but I imagine you can look it up on uh, on YouTube. But uh, yeah, the the icky shuffle would be uh, my favorite team celebration.
0: Oh, man, that's a good question. I'm not sh- so. I'm not sure if Ryan's asking what is my signature celebration like, as in my favorite signature celebration, or the one that I would choose to use. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what Ryan's getting at here, but I'm gonna, I am gonna. assume the way it's worded, what is your signature celebration means, like what I would do. And mm-hmm. like my first thought at reading this question was that I would like to do something different every time, kind of like uh, some of these uh, football celebrations that we've seen in recent years. Yeah. Um, but then I thought I would I would that would be just too much work to think of a new one every time. Um, <laughs> and so I think I would do you think you went back a ways. Everybody's going to have to YouTube, you know, search this one. I would probably do the Billy White Shoes Johnson dance. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Billy White Shoes Johnson, uh, former uh, NFL player long, long time ago. Look him up if you don't know what it is. a kind of a crazy, funky dance. Uh, I, I liked it. I always thought it was great whenever he did it. I, I would do that. Uh, favorite team celebration routine that you've seen. I kind of like this happened a while ago when Brian Rochez was on the team, Brian Rochez scored a goal. And for some reason, him and Chris Nogida got down on the ground. It's did sort of like an alligator crawl.
1: Okay. I remember that. Yeah. And
0: I think that was great. <laughs> I, I would love to see that more. So yeah, that was my favorite team celebration. It just happened to be uh, an Orlando city one. So it ties in. So there you go. Thank you, Ryan, for the question. Again, ask us anything every week, email us at the mainland at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter. We are at the mainland Use that hashtag, AskTMLPC. Dave, Orlando City has two games coming up. A game tonight tonight in the U.S. Open Cup could push the team further than it's ever been in the U.S. Open Cup competition. A win at Philadelphia would make Orlando a semifinalist. Uh, And at that point, I think Orlando has actually applied to host a game. So that could be a home game for the semifinals. And uh, there would be actually a win against Philadelphia would put them two wins away from Champions League play. That's pretty crazy.
1: That's, yeah, given the season, that's uh, that's exciting.
0: Absolutely. But with that said, I need your key matchups and your final score prediction for the U.S. Open Cup match at the Philadelphia Union
1: all right so uh key matchup um i'm going back to uh something you mentioned in the last game which was uh how the the defensive midfield and and the defensive uh uh, front or the defensive line was able to um shut down part of the field um i think they're going to have to do that again against philadelphia um you know you've got to uh, Bedoya in there, and uh, of course you've got Sapong coming up uh, up top. So I, I think if they can if they can win that defensive end, then they've got a good chance. Um, prediction, man. Uh, I'm going to be hopeful. I'm going to uh, allow a little luck of the Irish here with uh, James O'Connor and say that. Uh, Orlando City does advance. Um, they do so by a score of 2-1. to one.
0: All right, interesting. I'm going to say that my key matchup is going to be the defense, the back line, because, again, no Spectre, no Sutter, no Sane. The killer S's, they're killing us because they're injured. Mm -hmm. um they're all gone so does james o'connor come back with a short week amro Tarek, a short week chris schuler does he try to get creative and go back to like an rj allen tony rocha kind of thing that we saw earlier in the year does shane o'neill get his first look he was in the 18 on saturday i don't know how he's going to handle that but however he handles that those four guys across the back. Against Sapong, Akam, if he plays, Corey Burke, those are guys who can put the ball in the net. Uh, Sapong and Akam in particular have been very effective against Orlando City throughout their careers. So I see that as the key matchup. Can the, can the back four in what might be a tired back four um, that traveled, how will they do against a very fresh Philadelphia attack? That's going to, that leads me into my score prediction because Philadelphia didn't play this weekend, Dave. They had a, they did have a friendly against Eintracht Frankfurt, but the starters didn't play but 30 minutes. Um, And none, really not many of the regulars even played after halftime or I mean before halftime. So not a lot of miles on the legs. They didn't have to travel. They're going to be much fresher. I don't. See Orlando City winning this game because the union have, especially in recent years under Jim Curtin, have have actually played quite well in this tournament and have have, uh, gotten all the way to the finals, I believe, twice um, or at least the semifinals. And that's going to be in their favor. The experience is going to be in their favor. Being fresh is going to be in their favor. Being at home is going to be in their favor. They got a lot going in their favor. Uh, I just think it's going to be a lot to ask of Orlando City. So I see this as a 2-1 Union victory.
1: Well, I did say I was being hopeful and referenced the luck of the Irish. So if perhaps if O'Neill is in there, then that's double the luck.
0: Always hopeful yet discontent. He knows changes aren't permanent, but change is. Nice. Ah, the right people will get that. All right, so uh, U.S. Open Cup, though, very much uh, up in the air. If Orlando can uh, somehow come away with that in advance, uh, you know, they're, like I said, just two wins from a potential appearance in CONCACAF Champions League. And with the the season going the way it has, as you mentioned, Who would have thought that? Um, But it's been a good run either way, even if they even if they bow out on the road against Philadelphia. It's been a really uh, decent little run. You know, I mean, as much as a two game run can be, uh, getting to the quarterfinals is always good. So um, either way, uh, I'm going to tip my cap to the Lions Wednesday night after the game. Uh, Hopefully it will be in celebration. Uh, not not the city of celebration, which is just uh, south of Orlando, <laughs> but, um, you, know, the, you know, the act of celebration. We've yes. got another game coming up Saturday to talk about. Columbus Crew on the road. I believe the Crew Stadium is uh, still not seen in Orlando City victory. Uh, the crew has not played great of late, as we discussed with Patrick Murphy. He, uh, you know, the the team has only won one of its last eight games. It has drawn three of those games. Uh, but those were, I think, were the first three games of the run. And uh, lately, the crew not finding the net, but the crew has not had trouble finding the net against Orlando City through the years. They typically score a couple of goals against Orlando, especially at home. Uh, Iguain is a big pain in the in the rear end for Orlando, and uh, they've got some dangerous players. Um, they've got a very good defensive team. They don't give up a lot of goals. Uh, and that will be Orlando's third game in eight days Dave what's your key matchup there and your final score prediction
1: well now I'm catching up to you and that uh, I'm I'm going to go with the back line this time in the key matchup um, Zardis has been uh, having a pretty decent year up there uh, like you said they've they've got Higuain, will trap I mean, there's there's guys up there that are gonna cause some problems and as you mentioned um, you know third game traveling again. Um, so it, for me, it's going to be the back line this time. I'm going to, um, I'm going to call this one a two, one loss going the other direction on this one. Um, this is the, I think this is the game where the, the legs fail us and, and, uh, it's, it falls apart in that respect. So two, one loss, uh, to the crew. Uh,
0: I am going to say my key matchup is going to be in the midfield is going to be, can the, def- the defensive midfielders, uh, Thwart Iguain the way that they kind of, um, for the most part, handled Giovinco uh, and his influence on the game. Because, like Giovinco, although Giovinco is a much better finisher uh, and much craftier, uh, more slippery guy, I think unlike unlike Giovinco, Iguaine's a guy who's more influential in the midfield part. But both of those both of those players really are 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 adept at pulling the strings just above the penalty area, so it's going to be imperative that you know whoever plays defensive midfield, whether it be Yotun, Iguda, Rossell, Johnson, Powers, or Rocha, those guys are going to have to keep Iguain from being able to pull those strings because generally. Columbus is successful at scoring goals when Higuain is is assisting them or setting them up or putting the wheels in motion. Um, you know, maybe it's a three or four pass uh, sequence, but he usually is the one starting it. So he's the guy that they got to watch out for. I think that's the primary matchup. The secondary matchup is going to be, uh, can the attacking midfield uh, get past Will Trap and, uh, and and expose the back line? And that's been a problem for a lot of teams. I'm going to say my my... Score prediction is going to be 1 0 Columbus. I see a low scoring game. I see a, an Orlando team without uh, a lot of energy having been on the road. Uh, I think it's going to be a tough one for, for Orlando to, to come away with a result.
1: Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We both predicted a loss. Uh, so it'll probably not be 2 1 or 1 0. It'll be something else.
0: Yeah, well, it'll either be a draw, a win. For Orlando City or an absolute shellacking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. All right. Uh sorry to be a downer at the end of this program. We started it off right? so happy was, because I Orlando know. It was Chicago so great. So we will be back next week. We'll have a, a lot to cover, obviously. We will have a couple of Orlando City games to discuss. A US Open Cup game and a league game in the middle of a very brutal stretch of games. In fact, after Saturday's game they'll have uh A bit of a short week, a Thursday game against New York City FC, uh, followed by a Sunday affair out in L.A. against the Galaxy. Got to go back across the country again, Dave. It's uh, it's just, uh, yeah, not the greatest travel schedule that this team has had ever since uh, it left for Miami. It's what we do. (laughs) So, you know, next year, maybe don't give us like six home games out of the first eight kind of break up some <laughs> of that travel a little bit although next year both la teams will have to come to orlando so that'll that'll limit the uh, west coast trips and in honesty um vancouver will have to come here too uh but uh, you know the team will have to go to seattle and portland and that and san jose so it's still three trips out there but hopefully not in the same month because that's a little much to ask for for anybody um
1: well you would think so but uh, don't you know don't put that out there.
0: <laughs> Don't put it out there. But I, I mean, I can't say that I've been thrilled with any of the schedules that we've had so far. I mean, there have been good points about them and bad points about them. I think t- 2015 might have been the best schedule the teams had, and in uh, and its in uh, its four year history. But uh, anyway, yeah, you got to play them the way they're the way they're dealt, and uh, not much you can do about it. So we'll again we'll talk about those those games. We'll talk obviously about. Uh, the pride against Seattle and uh, next week, as we, we will be heading into the tournament of nations preparing for New York city FC again, that will be a home game and, uh, and the galaxy as well. So a lot to talk about next week, get your questions in for ask the mainland podcast, anything uh, again, hashtag ask TMLPC on Twitter and uh, via email, the mainland at gmail.com. Please, uh, Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, read our stuff at TheMainland.com, subscribe to this podcast. I didn't look this week, Dave. There weren't any new uh, reviews last week. I haven't looked this week. We'll look next week. I got a lot to do. (laughs) Five-star review on iTunes uh, and write something out. You know, we'll, we'll read it on the air. I think that's it, Dave. You got anything to add? No, just that uh, they can find
1: you at Mainland Michael and me at Mainland Dave on the Twitters. Um, other than that, um, let's uh, let's end this on a high note.
0: Okay, how do we do that?
1: Oh, man, I was hoping you were going to do the uh, Blazing <laughs> Saddles thing. Dang it.
0: Oh, well, uh, no, we tried. Nope, nope, no. I'm <laughs> I'm spent, as they say, uh, as Austin Powers once said. Anyway, um, that'll do it uh, for episode number 134. Thanks uh, to Patrick Murphy for joining us from a Massive Report. And uh, thanks to my co-host, David Rowe. On his behalf, I will sign off this episode of the Mainland Podcast the way I always do, by saying, go city and go pride.